the words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 7 and verse 15. The 15th verse in the 7th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? I really want to call your attention only to that first statement. And the Jews marveled. Now, you will remember that what led them to marvel is what we are told in the previous verse, where we read, Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the effect of his teaching was that the Jews marveled. Here was our Lord up at the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem. And thus we are told that about halfway through the feast he began to teach. We were considering last Sunday evening in general what uh, that uh, teaching was. But tonight we are concerned with its effect, and in particular upon these Jews. And the term Jews here means the leaders of the Jews, not the ordinary people. They are always referred to as the people. The Jews here in the Gospel of John always means the Pharisees and scribes and the doctors of the law, the authorities, the religious authorities. And the effect it had upon them was that they marveled. Now, there is no word, perhaps, that uh, expresses more perfectly the very essence of Christianity than just that word, marvel. It is, of course, the great characteristic word of the New Testament. In various ways and forms, we find it almost everywhere. These are the typical New Testament terms. Marveled, wondered, were amazed, were astonished. Those are the big words of the four Gospels. And when you come to the New Testament and this likewise, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, in exactly the same way, and when you come to the Epistles, the great word you find there is mystery. The mystery. Therefore, I say that this is the word of all words that conveys to us the very essence of the Christian faith, the Christian message, and the Christian position. There can be no doubt at all. I think any unbiased person who reads the Gospels and the book of Acts must admit that the effect of the Christian message and the Christian Gospel at the beginning was to produce just this effect that our Lord's teaching produced in the temple at Jerusalem on that occasion. It led to marveling. Here, I say, is the thing that is found everywhere in the Gospels. And there it is in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Now, we are meeting on which Sunday evening? The Sunday in which the church looks back to that great day of Pentecost and remembers 
and reminds herself of what happened. And if you take the trouble to read again that second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, you'll find that those are the terms used. I'll remind you of it later on. They were all amazed. They marveled. Christianity at the beginning was a cause of wonder and astonishment, amazement. Men and women were arrested, surprised, and astonished. And, of course, the history of the church shows very plainly and clearly that in all subsequent eras in the history of the church, especially when there has been revival or reformation, or reawakening, the effect has still been the same. It has caused the world to be filled with this sense of amazement, astonishment, and of marvel. Very well, then, I think we are entitled to say this, that the presence or the absence of this element of marvel, or amazement, or astonishment, proclaims very clearly, therefore, as to what claims to be Christianity. Is in reality Christianity or not? I think you'll agree that that's a fair deduction. Here it is, as our Lord himself speaks, they marvel. As the apostles speak, they marvel. As you find in every period, I say, of revival and of reawakening, it leads to marvel and amazement. Very well, then, I make this deduction. The way to test uh, whether any teaching or type of preaching that claims to be Christian, the way to test whether it really is Christian or not, is to discover whether there is in it this element of marvel, and of astonishment, and of amazement, and whether it leads uh, to that effect upon people who listen to it. Now then, this is the great matter that should be concerning us all at the present time. It is at any rate my profound conviction that it is the absence of this element that accounts for the state of the church and of society and the world outside at this very moment. The church is no longer causing people to marvel and to be filled with amazement and astonishment. And why? Well, there is something wrong in what we represent Christianity to be. If you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, as just a man, oh, yes, perhaps a great genius, a great religious genius, a great uh, and incomparable teacher, as a man who lived a very wonderful life, if you just think of him like that, well, it may lead to a certain amount of admiration and respect, but it won't lead to any marveling. And then, if you think of Christianity as just some moral and ethical teaching, if you think that Christianity is but a message that teaches us to avoid certain sins and to make our protests against various matters, if Christianity is really nothing but a combination of temperance and pacifism, and political agitation, well, again, it may interest certain people, but it won't cause anybody to marvel. There's nothing marvelous about that. Infidels and skeptics can do all that, and you find they are doing it today. They are some of the leaders in these protests about the bombs and about war. People like Bertrand Russell and others, infidels and skeptics, 
and denials of the faith. They can do all that. So if the church just does that, well, it's not surprising, is it, that she doesn't cause people to marvel. But Christianity causes people to marvel, as our Lord did here in the temple at Jerusalem. And again, if a Christian, if we give the impression that to be Christian just means that you go to a place of worship once a Sunday, that you call yourself a religious person, and that you say that you worship God, and that you're doing your best to lead a good life and to do as much good as you can, well, again, it may lead certain people to honor you and to respect you, but uh, it won't cause anybody to marvel. They may be surprised that you're still doing a thing like that. But nobody look on with amazement and astonishment and marvel at you. Because the Jews do that with their religion. The Mohammedans do that with their religion. The Hindus do that. The Confucians. Everybody who has any sort of religion does that. There's nothing marvelous. There's nothing wonderful. There's nothing outstanding. There's nothing arresting about that. And in the same way, if we give the impression that the Christian church is just an institution or an organization, one institution among a number of institutions and organizations, people are bending themselves together today for all sorts and kinds of purposes. There are clubs, there are political societies, social societies, there are artistic, musical, dramatic societies. And if we give the impression that the church is just a a number, one of these societies engaged upon certain matters, well, people may again say, well, that's quite interesting, but nobody will marvel at it. If it's just a gathering of human beings organized by them and kept going by them, and that its design is to foster this religious interest and to help to organize various protests against things that are happening in the world, well, again, I say, people may say, well, that's all right if people like to do that rather than do this, but it'll never lead anybody to marvel. And yet I say the great note in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in the Acts, in the Epistles, is this note of marvel, this amazement, this astonishment. Now, why is that? Well, <laughs> there is only one answer to this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the account of God's mighty deeds. What was it that these apostles began to preach on the day of Pentecost? Wasn't it this? The wonderful works of God. That's what it's all about. Not what men have done. Not what men think. But what God has done. The wonderful works of God. And I say it is because that is the very nature and the essence of the gospel that it always leads to this sense of wonder, amazement, astonishment, this sense of mystery. Why? Well, for this reason, that the gospel is a record of divine action, miraculous action, supernatural action. And I say, if we evacuate the gospel of that, it's no longer the gospel. If you can explain what passes as gospel in terms of men and human thinking and ideas, it's no longer gospel. 
But the moment this divine, this miraculous, this supernatural element comes in, why then men are filled with marvel and amazement, they're astonished, they're bewildered, they say, what is this? That's the great message of Sunday. That's the great message of the day of Pentecost. It is, I say, the great message of the whole of the New Testament. Now then, all I want to do this evening is to show you and to hold before you some of the things that have always led to this element of marveling and of wonder and of amazement. And, of course, we must start with the one that is here before us in our text. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Oh, my dear friends, have you ever gone through your New Testament looking for this? You'll find it everywhere. Everything about him was marvelous, and it caused people to marvel and to be filled with a sense of astonishment. Let me give you some examples of what I'm saying. You know, he caused marvel and wonder and amazement even before he was born. Do you remember the archangel Gabriel going to Mary and telling her, Hail, thou that art anointed. And how he proceeded to tell her that she was going to bear a son. Do you remember Mary's reaction? When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. There's the mere preparation for his coming. Here is the announcement. The preliminary announcement. The announcement to Mary. And at once she's troubled in her mind. She can't understand what manner of salutation this should be. And as the archangel goes on and tells her about the wonderful character of this son, this child she's to bear, Mary in amazement and astonishment turned to him and said, How shall that this be, seeing that I know not a man? The thing seemed impossible to her. But my dear friends, that's Christianity. It is the annunciation of God's action. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and that holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. He's the Son of the Highest. That's Christianity. God breaking into time in the person of his only begotten Son. There it is, I say, even before he's born. Let me hurry on. Consider how he produced this effect from the moment he was born. There I see that old man, Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel and for the coming of God's salvation. I see that old man holding the infant Jesus in his arms and speaking about him and saying, This child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel and for a sign that shall be spoken against. Yea, he said to Mary, and a sword shall enter into thine own heart. What effect did that have? We read that Joseph and his Mary marveled at those things which were spoken of him. This little infant, this child, this helpless babe, this child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel. This helpless babe, they marveled at what the old men were saying. Of course they did. 
But let's hurry on and look at him at the age of 12. You remember the incident, don't you? Joseph and Mary had gone up again to Jerusalem to a feast and they'd taken him with them. And now they were on the return journey and everything seemed to be going all right. Suddenly they realized that Jesus wasn't there. They supposed that he was in the company, but he wasn't. And back they go to Jerusalem, now trying to find him, wondering what could have happened to him. And they find him there in the temple. And there he was, reasoning and arguing and disputing and confounding the doctors of the law at the age of twelve. And this is what I read. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And when Joseph and Mary saw him, they were amazed. But Mary was his mother, remember, and Joseph had brought him up with Mary, and they'd had him for twelve years. But here they see him sitting there and confounding these doctors of the law, and they were amazed at him. That's the effect, you see, that he always seemed to produce. And then look at another aspect. There was nothing that so caused people to marvel and to be amazed at his ability to understand and to teach. Because after all, he'd only been a carpenter. He wasn't a Pharisee. He'd never had any training at all. And yet when he began to speak and to teach, there was something about him that they'd never heard before. You remember we are told at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that the people said, This man speaketh with authority, and not as the Pharisees and scribes. This capacity, this ability, this understanding. And here he is here in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. He began to teach and they marveled. This knowledge, how with this man letters having never learned, that's the problem. He was an enigma. And then not only his knowledge but the way in which he imparted it. His way of speaking. You go back and read the account of his first address, as it were, in the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel. He was in his hometown of Nazareth, and he went, as his custom was, into the synagogue on Sunday, and he began to teach them there, and this is what I read. And they all marveled at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. Indeed, there's an illustration of this same thing here at the end of this seventh chapter of John's Gospel. The officers and the chief priests sent certain soldiers to arrest him. But the officers came back without him. And then the, came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, Never men spake like this man. They said we couldn't touch him. We've heard many speakers, but never anybody like this. Never men spake like this man. There's something strange here. There is a mystery. There is a marvel. And his actual teaching produced the same effect. I give you but one example of it this evening. His teaching to that great man Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. When he began to tell him about the new birth, about the utter absolute necessity of being born again, Nicodemus was astonished. He couldn't follow this. And our Lord said unto him, Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. But he did marvel. 
He couldn't understand it. He couldn't take it in. That was the effect of his teaching always. We have heard strange things today, they said. And then think of his miracles. He never worked a miracle, but the people were filled with a sense of wonder and astonishment and amazement. Oftentimes, they gave praise unto God. They said, what is this? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this person? He seemed to be a man, and yet there was always something more, and they couldn't understand him nor fathom him. What is this? The miracle. But you know, there's another thing that astonished people, and I do want to emphasize this this evening. His behavior constantly astonished people and filled them with a sense of marvel. There's an incident described in the 11th chapter of Luke's Gospel where our Lord was invited one day to go into the house of a certain Pharisee and to dine with him. And our Lord accepted the invitation and went immediately and sat down at the table. And we read, and when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, these Pharisees and scribes had got an endless number of rules and regulations about eating and drinking. They were punctilious in observing these niceties of the law, and many of them were not indeed in the law, but their own inventions. They were experts on tithing mint and rue and anise and cumin. And here our Lord sat down at the table without first washing his hands, and the man was astonished at him. But that wasn't the only respect in which he caused people to marvel by his behavior. There is an incident in the seventh chapter of Luke's Gospel where our Lord was sitting down again with a Pharisee having a meal. And there was a certain woman in the city who was a very great sinner, an evil character. She came along and began to wash his feet with her tears and to wipe them again with the hair of her head. And this is what I read. When the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. He was astonished that our Lord allowed a sinner like this to come near him and to wash his feet and to dry them with the hair of her head. They couldn't understand it. Indeed, I read exactly the same thing in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. One afternoon our Lord was rather tired, so he sat down by the side of a well while the disciples went to buy provisions. And a woman came, a woman of Samaria came, and began to talk to him. And then the disciples came back, and this is what we read. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. A woman of Samaria. They couldn't follow this. They marveled that he talked with the woman. And then you remember the great statement at the beginning of the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel. Then drew nigh unto him publicans and sinners. And he began to eat and drink with them. And to have fellowship and communion with them. This man, they said, receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And they couldn't follow it. They wouldn't dream of doing that. They were the religious people. And to be religious meant that you drew your skirts aside and you wouldn't go near a sinner. But here is one who mixed with them, a friend of publicans and sinners, a gluttonous man, they said, and a wine-bibber. He's mixing with sinners. And they marveled and were amazed at his behavior. 
You see, that is the effect he produced in almost everything he did. But come, let us go on to the climax of it all. Here is one who can still the waves and silence the wind. Here is one who can quell a storm, can cast out devils clean. The lepers give sight to the blind, raise the dead. And yet, he is arrested in apparent utter weakness. And doesn't seem to be able to defend himself. Not only that, he is taken before the Roman governor Pilate. And Pilate questions him and examines him and asks him questions. And what I read is this, and he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. What is this man? Who is he? This man who seems so filled with power and yet seems so weak and helpless, who doesn't defend himself, who doesn't answer the questions, who doesn't try to seek his own release. And there he is nailed to the cross. And you see the crowd, the holiday crowd, hearing that there was a crucifixion, they gather together and they look at him and they mock and they jeer and they laugh and they say, Hail! Thou that savest others, save thyself. Thou that hast said that thou canst destroy the temple and again in three days rebuild it, come down from the cross and save thyself. They mocked at him. What, this is not just another way of expressing marvel and amazement. He seems so weak, so helpless. What is this? Who is he? But you know, the thing that astonished them most of all was this. After a very few hours, Pilate received a report that he was already dead. Now, crucifixion was a very slow process of death. That was the horrible thing about crucifixion. You were just nailed there to the tree. And there you were hanging with the nails holding you to the tree, full of life and vigor. And slowly, very, very slowly, your life ebbed out of you. It was the slowest form of death. But to their amazement and astonishment, he died quickly. And I'm told in Mark 15:44, and Pilate marveled if he were already dead, but he was. And he astonished them as much in the rapidity of his death as he had done in his birth, in his behavior as a boy, in his miracles, his teaching, his everything. He caused them to marvel and to be amazed from the very beginning to the very end. And there he is, dead and buried. But you see, he hasn't finished shocking them even there. Suddenly, they find that the grave is empty. He is risen. He has disappeared. He's no longer there. He's come out to the grave. And then he appears to them and they're always filled with astonishment and amazement. And finally, as he's talking to them on top of a mountain, he ascended from amongst them up into heaven and they saw him going and his own disciples stood looking in astonishment and amazement. Even when he'd gone out of sight, they still stood dumbstruck and astonished and amazed. And an angel appeared and said, Ye men of Israel, ye men of Israel, why stand ye there looking up to him? 
Wake up, he said. Come back to earth, as it were. Don't stand looking in marvel and astonishment and amazement. He'll come back again, even as he has gone. Well, now, there you see other things concerning this person. Here he is in the temple at Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he began to teach. And the Jews marveled. He was always causing men to marvel. Who is he? What is this? Why does he have this effect? Why is this the characteristic note of the Gospels, which are but portraits of him? What is it? And there is only one answer to the question. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's what it is. All these are just indications of this stupendous, staggering fact that at that given point of time and in history the Son of God came into this world. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And that is why everybody marveled, even Mary, his mother. That is why Joseph marveled. That is why everybody marveled him at, the, at, at him at the age of twelve. That is why they couldn't understand how this carpenter could speak and teach with such authority and explain things that baffled the doctors of the law. That is why they marveled at his miracles. That is why they marveled at his silence. So powerful, so weak, what is this? I say, it's God and men in one. And why did he die? Why didn't he defend himself when they came to arrest him? Why didn't he, as he said, he could command twelve legions of angels and be carried into heaven? Why did he allow them to take him and to crucify him in utter apparent weakness and defenselessness? Why did he do it? And this is the most marvelous thing of all. He had come into this world in order to die. That's the mystery. The Jews thought that he was coming to teach, that he was coming to be a great king, to set up an army. People still think he's come to do this, that, and the other, but no, no. He came to die. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And why did he die so quickly? Why was Pilate surprised when he received the report that he was already dead? Was he weaker than other people? Certainly not. There was no sin in him, so his body was perfect. But he died quickly, long before the other people who were crucified with him. They had to break their bones. They didn't have to break his. He'd already died. Why did he die so quickly? And here is the most marvelous thing in connection with this glorious mystery. I can tell you why he died so quickly. The weight of your sins and mine were upon him. And they separated him from his father. He received the punishment of our sins. The wrath of God against our sins fell upon him. And it literally broke his heart. His heart ruptured. That is why when the spear was thrust into his side, there came out water and blood. 
He died literally of a broken, ruptured heart. That's the marvel. That's the mystery. Pilate didn't understand it. Nobody else did. We are given the explanation by John in his gospel. Oh yes, it was because his soul had been made an offering for sin and the wrath of God upon him. It killed him. It wasn't the lingering death of crucifixion that killed the Son of God. It was the bearing of the punishment of our sins. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, but that is why, you see. That's the mystery about him. He's God and man. You look at him, you think he's only man. You think he's only God. No, no, he's both. And he appears to be contradictory. So he's always an enigma. He causes us to marvel, and everything about him leads to the same result. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. They marveled at him. Of course they did. But let me hurry on. It is not only he that has led to this marvel. The history of the church, I say, has done the same thing. The Lord Jesus Christ did not cause, cease to cause this world to marvel when he ascended into heaven. He went on doing it. We call that book of the Acts the book of the Acts of the Apostles. A much better name would be the Acts of the Risen Christ. Don't you remember when Peter and John healed the lame men at the beautiful gate of the temple? Everybody began praising them, but Peter said, don't praise us. Don't think that we, by our own power or wisdom or holiness, have, have enabled this man to walk. His name through faith in his name, this Jesus whom you have crucified, his name through faith in his name hath given this man this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. It was the risen Christ who did it. Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He's doing it still, and he's causing everybody to marvel and to be filled with amazement. But wait, even before that. You remember what happened on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem? These followers of his were met together in an upper room, just 120 of them. Simple people, fishermen, artisans, and others. And they were just praying together. They'd been doing it for ten days. But suddenly there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. Which filled the house. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this was noised abroad and the people gathered together from everywhere. And this is what I read. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, what is this? I read that twice over in that second chapter of Acts. They were all amazed as they heard these simple men speaking the wonderful works of God in their own languages, Cretes, Arabians, those who had come from the various parts of the then civilized world to the feast of Pentecost at Jerusalem. They marveled. They were filled with a sense of amazement. And again I say, that was the thing that continued. Peter and John healed that lame man and there he is, suddenly rising on his feet. The men they all knew so well he'd been 
put there before the gate of the temple every day of his life, and he was nearly 40 years of age, suddenly they see the men walking and leaping and praising God and rushing into the temple. And as the lame men which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people and said, Ye men of Israel, etc., why marvel ye at this, as though we, by our own power or holiness, had made this man walk? And did you notice what I read in the reading at the beginning in chapter 4? The authorities have arrested Peter and John, and this is what we read. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. They marveled at them. What was it? It was this. They were astonished at the change that had taken place in these people. These ignorant and unlettered and untutored men, who now are so filled with knowledge and understanding and power and authority and boldness, they couldn't understand them and they were filled with this sense of astonishment and amazement. And you know the Christian church has continued like that. The Jews and then the pagans did their best to exterminate the Christian church, but in spite of all their malignity and all their efforts, the church went on. And the early Centuries were astonished at these people, the martyrs. They would take them and arrest them. They'd say, look here, if you don't say that Caesar is Lord, we'll throw you to those lions in the arena. And they said, we'll never say that Caesar is Lord, for Jesus is Lord. So they took them. And they used to have it as their favorite sport in the Colosseum in Rome. They'd take these Christians and throw them to the lions. But to their astonishment, these people, instead of crying out for pity and for mercy were to be found with a radiance upon their faces, thanking God that they'd been accounted worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. Thanking God for the privilege of dying for such a savior. And Rome was shaken and astonished and amazed. They couldn't understand it. He's gone on causing people to marvel, you see, through the church. And he has done this particularly in the great revivals in the history of the church throughout the centuries. Don't you see that one man, Martin Luther, he pulls up the whole world and everybody marvels. Who's this monk, they say? Who is he who stands alone? He's a marvel. He's a phenomenon. Of course he is. It's Christ who's made him such. How often have the clever, cynical men of the world delivered their funeral orations on the Christian church? Ah, they said, she's played out, she's finished. They did that, you know, 200 years ago at the beginning of the 18th century, the rationalists here in London, they dismissed it, Lord Chesterfield and company. It was all rubbish and nonsense, nothing in it, dismissed it, derided it. And then when they began to listen to the preaching of men like George Whitfield and John Wesley, they were filled with amazement and astonishment. They couldn't explain it. They couldn't understand it. Of course they couldn't. They were just staggered in amazement. And so God has gone on causing people to marvel through the church. But after all, there is nothing that has so caused marvel amongst men and women as the message of Christianity. 
What is its message? Oh, there is nothing more surprising than this. Men have always thought of religion as something which a man does in order to please God. That's the natural man's idea of religion. What is religion? Go and ask him. Well, he says religion is this, that a man attends a place of worship now and again, that he says his prayers, that he tries to live a good life, doesn't do certain things, and does as much good as he can. That's their idea of religion and of pleasing and of worshipping God. That's Christianity. As Matthew Arnold described it, morality tinged with a little emotion. So when they're confronted with the message of Christianity, they're filled with marvel and amazement because this is what the message is. That it is nothing what man does, but what God does. What's Christianity? I'll tell you. It isn't living a good life, it's this. When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. That's it. The archangel Gabriel going to Mary. That's Christianity. No, no, not what man's done, but what God's done. God hath visited and redeemed his people. That's the message. And it's an extraordinary salvation. The message of Christianity is that salvation is not something that a man works for himself. It's not something a man earns. It is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. And people marvel at this. They say, I thought to be a Christian means that I live a good life. I turn over a new leaf. I'm going to stop doing certain things. And then, as the result of my living this good life, God will forgive me and I'll go to heaven. Rubbish and nonsense. It isn't Christianity. That's a denial of Christianity. This is Christianity. By grace are he saved. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. This is the thing that causes people to marvel and to be amazed. Justification is by faith only, not by works, not by works of the law, not by good deeds that I have done. No, no, it's in spite of me. It is God's act. Salvation because the Son of God came into the world and died my death and bore my punishment in his own body on the tree and that his righteousness is put to my account. I have nothing. I am weak. I am helpless. I am in rags. I am unworthy. His righteousness made over to me and I am clothed with the spotless robe of his perfect righteousness, the free gift of God. That's the message. And then on top of it all, the thing that caused Nicodemus to marvel, regeneration, a new birth, a new life. How does a man become a Christian? Is it as the result of his exertions and efforts? Is it anything he does? No, no, you must be born again. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Marvel not that I said unto thee, he must be born again. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That which is born, that which is of the, born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do you know what this means? Do you know what it is to be born again? Listen. 
the wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. This mysterious act of God upon your soul, the Spirit of God creating you anew, infusing new life into you, making a new man of you. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's the message. And men marvel at it because they thought Christianity was just decency, morality, pacifism, temperance, and just a few things that they can do. But it isn't. This is Christianity. The Son of God coming down, bearing our sins, dying our death, giving us his own life, filling us with his spirit. That's the thing that causes people to marvel. So I end by asking a question. Have you marveled at it? Have you ever marveled at the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever marveled at his teaching? Have you ever marveled at this salvation? This bread and wine? This broken body? This shed blood? You've sung the hymn I know many times when I survey the wondrous cross. But is it wondrous to you? You've sung love so amazing, so divine. Has it amazed you? Has it astonished you? Are you filled with wonder at the whole way of salvation? I have no hesitation in saying this. If you've never marveled at it, you are just not a Christian. You can't be. It's impossible. This inevitably causes men to marvel. So I ask you the most pointed question of all. I've been asking you, have you marveled at him and have you marveled at his teaching? Come. Have you marveled at yourself? That's the question. Have you marveled at yourself? You remember how the Apostle Paul did? He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. He says, I was formerly a persecutor and a blasphemer and an injurious person. I did it ignorantly in unbelief, but I obtained mercy. He never got over it. The, love of the Son of God, he says, who loved me and who gave himself for me. He marveled at it. That the Son of God could ever have loved him and have died for him, who had hated him, maligned him, reviled him and persecuted him. Have you ever said honestly to yourself, as Charles Wesley said, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued, 
amazing love. And can it be that thou, my God, hast died for me? Have you marveled at yourself? At the new life that's in you, the life of God in your soul, the interest in the Bible, the desire to know God, the thirst, the longing for prayer and for communion. Are you amazed at yourself? A Christian must inevitably marvel at himself. Have you marveled at yourself? Do you know, my dear friends, this is a solemn matter. Because there is a day coming when everybody will marvel at him and at his great salvation. Listen to the Apostle Paul warning the people in Antioch of Pisidia. He'd preach Jesus and the resurrection to them. He'd preach this gospel that I've been feebly trying to hold before you tonight. And then he said, listen, beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, Though men declare it unto you. My dear friend, there is a day coming when every eye shall see him, yea, and they that pierced him. And when they see him, they will marvel at him. At the glory of his person, at the magnificence of his appearance, the despised, crucified Jesus, the Lord of glory. Every eye shall see him. You are going to see him. And then you'll marvel if you haven't marveled before then. You'll marvel at him. That he who is so glorious could ever have humbled himself and made himself so low that we might be redeemed. You will marvel at your own blindness and your own unbelief. And you will marvel at his power wherewith he will destroy his every enemy. Listen to this from the book of Revelation. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go unto perdition. That's the worldly power in all its pomp and glory. They'll all be sent to perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder. Whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was and is not. And yet is. Oh, it's a terrible thing to contemplate this. That men and women who now despise the Lord Jesus Christ and who are full of wonder and amazement at the world and its civilization and its politicians and its great men and they marvel and they wonder at the pomp and ceremony and the magnificence and the science and the discoveries filled with astonishment and marvel and see nothing in Jesus. At that day, they will see everything that they've worshipped and gloried in, cast ignominiously to everlasting perdition. And the despised Jesus 
glorious and reigning over all. They marveled at him. Have you marveled at the fact that the Son of God so loved you even as you are that he left heaven and came into this world, lived here for 33 years, misunderstood, buffeted, maligned, hated, reviled, and even bore the punishment of your sins in his own body on the tree, was buried in your grave, and rose again. That your sins might be blotted out, that you might be reconciled to God and become his child. And have a certain assurance of spending eternity in the presence of God. Do you believe it? Have you seen it? Do you marvel at it? If you don't, confess it to God. It means you're dead, spiritually dead. If you don't marvel at Christ and especially his death upon the cross, you're dead, you're lifeless, you've got no feeling in you. And you'll go to hell if you remain like that. Ask him to have mercy upon you and by his spirit to give you life anew. Flee from the wrath to come. Plead with him to have pity. And I can promise you that if you do so, ask him. He will not refuse you. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Amen.